Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet and translator Gregory Pardlow. Pardlow received his MFA in poetry from NYU, his MFA in nonfiction from Columbia, and is a doctoral student in English from the City University of New York. He has taught at Columbia, the New School, Medgar Evers College, and George Washington University, and is currently a professor of creative writing at his alma mater, Rutgers University, Camden. 
Pardo is also the associate editor of Callaloo, a journal of African diaspora arts and letters, the longest continuously running African-American literary magazine. Pardo's first book, Totem, was a finalist for both the Kave Kanem Book Prize and the National Poetry Series, and was selected by Brenda Hillman as the winner of the American Poetry Review Honickman First Book Prize. Pardo's work has appeared in Tin House, The Nation, Plowshares, The Boston Review, two editions of Best American Poetry, and numerous anthologies, including Angles of Ascent, the Norton Anthology of Contemporary African American Poetry, and Black Nature, Four Centuries of African American Nature Poetry. Gregory Pardo, in addition to being a poet, is also a translator of Danish poetry. He's received the National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship in Translation, and is the translator of the full-length poetry collection Pencil of Rays and Spike Mace by Danish poet Niels Lingsu. Parlo's second poetry collection, Digest, is a heartening story for writers. Rejected for four years by nearly every publisher, Digest was finally picked up by a small press, Four-Way Books, and quietly sold about 1,500 copies. That is, until it won the Pulitzer Prize in poetry, while Parlo was still a graduate student. Digest was also a New York Times Best Poetry Book of the Year and an Academy of American Poets standout book. Since the publication of Digest, Parlo has, just months ago, won a Guggenheim Fellowship and been named a judge of this year's National Book Award. Nick Flynn says of Digest, a bright red thread of fatherhood runs through this book, at times tenuous, at times mythic, always searching and revelatory, grounded in our present moment while wrestling with eternity a thrilling, brilliant, and deeply moving ride. Tracy K. Smith says, Parlo renders America with its intractable conundrums and its clashing iconographies, with lines that balance poise and a jam-packed visceral music and images that glimmer and seethe together like a conflagration. Campbell McGrath adds, in an age of poems crafted to resemble linguistic balloon animals or sheets of floral wallpaper, it is rare to find an American poet thinking seriously about anything. I suppose that's what makes Gregory Pardlow's engaged, intelligent poetry, with its exuberant range of cultural and historical reference, feel a bit like stumbling out of the desert to encounter the Nile River. Welcome to Between the Covers, Gregory Pardlow. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. So it's interesting that the more time I spent with Digest, the more I leaned into the work the more I'm amazed I was by how many different concerns were braided together in it mm-hmm. um, that revealed it's themselves the more I, I spent time with the book. Fatherhood, masculinity, patriarchy, identity, black history, race, the performance of race, mm-hmm. the environment, visual arts, literature, philosophy, oh, man. the academy, <laughs> a- academic language, a weaving of the personal and the abstract of popular culture and the scholarly uh, and to forgive the pun, um, there's a lot to digest well, in the book. That's, that's, that's the point of the title, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it's also mm-hmm. clear how much has been digested and, and how much of it mm-hmm. has, um, because of that digestion, has cohered into a whole. I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. if you could talk to us a little bit about that um, digestion process. Well, when I started working on the book, I had a couple of things were happening. I just had, my wife and I just had our first daughter. And I was uh, starting on the the PhD work. I was taking classes toward the PhD. 
I was teaching full-time at Medgar Evers College, and some colleagues of mine told me if I wanted to get tenure, then I should have a doctoral degree. I should have a PhD. And I kind of bristled at that. <clears throat> but because I was a, a faculty member, I was able to take courses for free. And so I started and, and discovered I absolutely loved it. And, and so I was doing a lot of reading in theory and, um, and African-American literature and thinking very deeply about fatherhood. And um, oh, it was also the case that we had just bought a house in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. And so I was thinking about you know, <laughs> capitalism, gentrification, you yeah. know, um, the whole, that's where the whole patriarchy thing comes together with property. Um, and so just a lot of these, these concerns were just naturally on my mind. And I think the, I didn't have to try very hard to sort of render them on the page. And it was after coming back to the poems again and again that I began then to layer them. So I guess the, the first earlier, earlier drafts, it was kind of automatic. You know, it wasn't really intentional to find all these these threads, but then in stepping back and thinking about it, um, start to kind of make them more explicit. Well, I mean, because you, there are so many places we could enter the book from, it, mm -hmm. there's a little bit of bewilderment. But I was thinking about perhaps starting with something you'd said specifically about poetry, and maybe we could orient some of our listeners who aren't poets or mm -hmm. poetry readers to some of these terms in relationship to the book. So at one point you you said that with Digest, you were ditching received narratives about what it means to be a lyric poet versus a metaphysical poet. Uh, can you elaborate for people what you mean, why those t two types of poetry are often seen in opposition, yeah. and what you were trying to trouble about the received narrative about the two? Yeah. Well, I, I'm also I'm often trying to trouble received narratives, period, and that's kind of my, my MO. But when we talk about, uh, I think metaphysical poets are kind of lumped in with the, this pejorative term, academic poets. Hmm. Uh, and there's a there's kind of distance from um, popular culture, a distance from uh, the day-to-day the -day lived experience that metaphysical poets tend to get um, sort of painted with, I guess. And the, the lyric poet... The, the, the narrative that I kind of resisted with the lyric poet is that the lyric poet is this like shaman, you know, this kind of spiritual uh, um, uh, lightning rod where inspiration just strikes and, you know, and there, there's no real, no real thinking about craft and, and no real um, sort of um, wrestling with um, literary history or literary tradition. And so I, I wanted to explore lyricism in a very conscious way, right? So it's not not this uh, automatic or, or reactionary lyricism. And I wanted to ask the big questions um, without feeling self-conscious about asking big questions, right? Because, right? you know, it, I, there's a kind of distrust about, and I don't know, but maybe, I'm sure I'm, I'm just imagining uh, a lot of this, but I think there is some distrust of uh, the, the pretense the pretentiousness that is suggested by you know poets asking, um, you know, about the nature of whatever <laughs> abstract idea. Right. Yeah. 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 So you've talked about also how you wanted to connect these um, these competing narratives between lyric and metaphysical poetry with competing narratives in your own family. So what mm. were the competing narratives that you were 
looking at in your own personal life that you're interbreeding with this sort of uh, tension between lyric and metaphysical poetry? Narratives of masculinity were certainly at the heart of um, what I found most rigid, most unbending. Um, and so I wanted to add a, a kind of tenderness to uh, what I think there are stereotypes of certainly black masculinity, you know, specifically, but sort of masculinity in general. Um, narratives of patriotism. So as a, again, as an African-American, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to say, to keep saying as an African-American male, blah, 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 blah. Um, but there it is. As, as, an, <laughs> as an African-American male, I, I think there, there is uh, a tendency to not credit us, for example, with uh, the, the kinds of patriotism that I think have been present in the black community for centuries, I mean, forever since we've been here. Um, and I wanted to, to explore different, the different ways that um, patriotism gets expressed from a, a non-majority um, non cultural perspective. Mm-hmm. And so this is, for example, in the, the, the poem Philadelphia Negro, right, where I'm, uh, I'm thinking back to 1976 when my father, and these, these are images that I don't think are very pop, don't, aren't found very often in popular culture. You know, my father takes me to see the Blue Angels, the jet fighters, you know, flying in formation, and I'm on his shoulders. And, you know, what more American scene, you know, nationalistic scene can you, can you get than that? But that, that moment is... I'm certainly troubled by the fact that it's, for many reasons, but by the fact that it's 1976 is the same year that the Roots came out, the the miniseries Roots uh, was mm -hmm. shown, and so uh, this this uh, sort of conflict, I don't want to say paradox almost, of seeing myself as a patriotic, masculine uh, or masculine leaning, aspiring uh, kid. And as this, and then recognizing myself as also a marginalized person who is subject to a history that um, that does not see me in the way that that I see, saw myself. Maybe this is a good time to have you read Raisin, oh, and I was mm. I was wondering partially because it deals with a personal narrative of of mm -hmm. fatherhood. And then the theatrical narrative of fatherhood, oh, but, performance. but inspired by a political event around a certain lineage with Obama and Jesse Jackson. Could you could you orient oh, can you yeah. orient us to yeah. to the many layers did, of did I say did I say that somewhere? You did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I um, around the time, and I I don't I I doubt that I wrote the poem in response to. The, the Jesse Jackson Obama moment, but I think around the time that I was thinking about this this intergenerational tension uh, among black men, um, Jesse Jackson was caught on a, a live microphone threatening to to castrate Obama because of his his uh, stance or his treatment of the black church, mm -hmm. and this just seemed to me just sort of you know emblematic of a lot of um, 
the resentment that that moves in any you know in any sort of cultural context but i think it's maybe perhaps amplified in the in the among african american men because of the the stakes of um of authority raisin i dragged my 12 year old cousin to see the broadway production of a raisin in the sun because the hip-hop mogul and rapping bachelor diddy played the starring role an aspiring rapper gave my cousin his last name and the occasional child support, so I thought the boy would geek to see a pop hero in the flesh as Walter Lee. My wife was newly pregnant, and I was rehearsing, like Diddy, swapping fictions, surrendering his manicured thug persona for a more domestic performance. My cousin mostly yawned throughout the play. Except the moment Walter Lee's tween son stiffened on stage, as if wrapped by the sound of a roulette ball. Scene. No one breathes as Walter Lee vacillates, uncertain of obsequity or indignation, after Lindner offers to buy the family out of the house they've purchased in the all-white suburb. Walter might kneel to accept, but he senses the tension in his son's gaze. I was thinking, for real though, what would Diddy do? Get rich or die trying, 50 Cent would tell us. But my father would sing like Ricky Skaggs, don't get above your raisin, when as a kid I vowed to be a bigger man than him. That oppressive fruit dropped heavy as a medicine ball in my lap, meant to check my ego. And I imagined generations wimpling in succession like the conga marching raisins that sang Marvin's hit song. It's silly, I know. Outside the theater, my cousin told me when Diddy was two, they found his hustler dad draping a steering wheel in Central Park, a bullet in his head. I shared what I knew of dreams deferred and Marvin Gaye. When asked if he loved his son, Marvin Sr. answered, let's just say I didn't dislike him. Beneath the bling of many billion diodes, I walked beside the boy through Times Square as if anticipating a magic curtain that would rise but only one of us would get to take a bow. We've been listening to Gregory Partlow read from his poetry collection, Digest. When you were on the Tavis Smiley show, Mm. um, you talked, one way you talked about the book was sort of a mapping of the ways aggression can move through a family. And I think about this intergenerational tension Mm -hmm. between Jesse Jackson and Obama is not necessarily a family, but a family in a different sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but we see this established early in Digest and Problema One with Abraham and mm-hmm. and his relationship to his his fraught relationship with his son. <laughs> and then in Problema Two with the Achebe epigram, right. um, my father, they've killed me. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of comes to blossom in Problema Four when we're looking at you start with Marx and sort of um, walk us through a sense of ownership within a family that is related to perhaps to patriarchy. But I would love to hear you maybe introduce and introduce that poem to us, how it came to be and, and maybe also read that in relationship to Raisin. Problema four. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you do a great job of, of uh, teasing out the, the threads. I was thinking very much about how so many social ills are, can be traced back to patriarchy. I mean, I think, you know, so much about gender or the problems about gender and sexuality and certainly race um, 
all kind of, as I say, trace back to this notion of the male head of household owning everyone in the house, and 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 that extends then to owning, you know, the the. At what point, I guess, is the question I'm asking, do the members of the family, at what age do they begin to own themselves? And and uh, and in thinking about it, it, it occurred to me that perhaps that, that just doesn't happen. We, it, there's, you know, this, this cycle of ownership just keeps turning over. And so I was thinking, as I said, I'm thinking very much about myself as a father and thinking about my daughters and you know, how to... What ways, what ways I'm implicit, I, or I'm not sorry. In what ways I'm complicit with this sort of patriarchal sense of of ownership, and what will I allow myself to imagine about my own children, or allow you know, what what um, permissible forms of behavior uh, do I see with my own children? I want to add too. I was thinking. So there's a there's a moment. I've gotten. Um, a little bit of heat, uh, not frequently, once in fact, and I thought it was really interesting the because there's the Chris Rock reference, um, and I'll repeat it when it, in, obviously in the poem, but Chris Rock says uh, that, you know, my first job is to keep my daughter off the pole. And what I'm thinking there, the, the reason I make the leap to that line is because I'm, I'm thinking about the ways in which uh, sex work is not seen as um, as labor, legitimate labor, and it is also seen as something that is controlled by the the consumer, right? And and yeah, and, yeah, and so the I wanted to introduce that idea. You know, when does the does the sex worker even own his or her own body in that uh, in that regard? And so um, I've had some people kind of you know bristle at that line. I think it's really interesting, and it's that these are the kinds of Troublings, you know, the, the kinds of yeah. uh, disturbances I want to make in the in the conversation. Problema four. At thirteen, I asked my father for a tattoo. I might as well have asked for a bar mitzvah. He said I had no right to alter the body he gave me. Aping what little of marks I learned from the sisters down the street who wore torn black stockings with Doc Martens, I said I was a man because I could claim my body and the value of its labor. This meant I could adorn it or dispose of it as I chose. Tattoos, my father said, are like children. Have one, you'll want another. I knew there was a connection between the decorated body and reproduction, this is why I wanted a tattoo. Yet I reasoned, not in so many words, his analogy only held in the case of possession, i.e., I possess my body, but cannot possess my children. His laughter was my first lesson in the human Ponzi scheme of paternalism, the self-electing indenture to the promise of material inheritance, men claiming a hollow authority because, simply, their fathers had claimed a hollow authority. Knowing I had little idea as to what my proposed tattoo might resemble, my father sent me to my room to sketch it using the pastels he had given me for Christmas. Based on his critique, he said he would consider my request. But he'd already taken the shine from my swagger. How can I beautify what I do not possess and call it anything but graffiti? 
Chris Rock says, my first job is to keep my daughter off the pole. Whether or not I agree with him, I get his point. As a father myself, I now see every mutinous claim of independence as the first steps toward my sweet peas falling in with a bad crowd. Richard Pryor says, we're bound to fuck up our kids one way or another. My father would split the difference. I made you, he'd say. I can unmake you and make another one just like you. I love that poem. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you had talked about before reading Problema 4 that you're looking at what ways could you be complicit and what ways could you pass things down intergenerationally, which are questions of both of the poems you've read so mm -hmm. far. And you've, but you've said that you wrote the poem Alienation Effect as mm -hmm. a way to sort of inoculate as almost a vaccination yeah. against um, the possible passage across generations of things yeah. that haven't been examined and that this poem took you seven years to write. Yeah. And it's also a poem that sort of carries even farther this this interbreeding of the personal and the scholarly because we get marks a little bit in Problema 4, but this is this is adopting the voice of a French literary Marx, Marxist scholar. So yeah. can you yeah. can you walk us through a little bit about the genesis of that approach. Yeah, and what, what that poem's doing and and the motivation yeah. and why it's related to a vaccination, essentially. Well, I think th that logic comes after the after the fact, after I'd written the poem and or after I'd realized how invested I was in the poem and thinking about what keeps drawing me back to it. So I was uh, reading the biography, autobiography of Louis Althusser, the, the French uh, post-structuralist Marxist uh, th um, theorist. And here's a guy who uh, he taught at the uh, Ecole Normale Supérieure and, and is sort of fam famous French theorist. And he sort of accidentally killed his wife. He was. He claims that he was giving her a back massage and discovered that he had choked her to death. And it just seemed the whole idea just seemed outrageous to me when I, you know, because I had read Althusser without knowing any of this backstory. And then when I discovered this backstory, a it was just insanely insane, and b it. It was there. Was, I, I don't know if it was a morbid. I think it's a morbid fascination, uh, but I was really interested, sort of theoretically, in the idea of someone who believes that our behaviors are so much encoded already in the language that the way that we think about the world, the way that we process just our logic uh, and experience, is already present in the language. How does someone like that experience? guilt or remorse where does the idea of the idea of, of forgiveness how does how does somebody like that come clean ever uh, and so when I kept coming back I realized that I kept coming back to this as, as you said I write this poem over seven years and that that is even excessive for me I spend a long time working on poems generally um, but I, I couldn't figure out what it was about this poem that just had me, you know, it became this kind of obsession, this kind of white whale that, that was on my wall, and I would come back to it oh, time and time again. And I began to suss out that his, the, well, the, the obvious misogyny 
that is implicit in that act was something that I felt again complicit in sort of just sociologically you know as a as a as a man of the west as a person of the west and and as a father then you know being really afraid of passing that along of inculcating that 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 as a form of self-hatred into my in my daughters terrified me um and so I wanted to push through writing that poem and thinking through that poem, regardless of what terrors it might hmm. it might turn up. Um, yeah. <laughs> Can you speak also to the technique, the theatrical technique that an alienation oh, effect yeah. is? Yeah. Uh, so um, Bertolt Brecht uh, has theorized he had this idea. What he was, um, what he opposed was that in going to the theater, attending attending a theater, the middle class folks, ourselves, for example, will get uh, sort of lulled into this this um, belief that what we're seeing is is real, and we then kind of forget about the outside world, forget about the the very real social and political. Uh, experiences that are out going on outside of theater. And so Brecht wanted to disrupt, he wanted to include these, uh, insert rather, these disruptions into the performances to remind the audience, the theater goers, that, you know, don't don't buy into the, the illusion that, you know, this is a world that, you know, you can escape into. He wanted to prevent uh, audiences from escaping into the, the stories. And so he had he would have characters stepping you know speaking out into the to the audience stepping out of the the, the fourth wall as it were um and so i was thinking about well the poem first of all is in the voice of louis althusser so it is it is what we call a persona poem and so i'm speaking in character and it just struck me as something very obviously very dramatic in it, in itself and i wanted to disrupt that performance because it the longer I wrote it the more I realized that there was some danger of me losing my own stake in again the misogyny that was inherent in that and pinning it entirely on Althusser on the character right and I, I didn't want to I wanted to hold myself accountable for my own my own investment in the poem and I didn't want to uh, try and fool the reader into into believing that this was just a, you know a, a kind of artistic exercise, creative exercise. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise something that I sure. that um, maybe just follow me for a second, mm -hmm. and then you can tell me whether this sounds credible around the Absolutely. enterprise of digest or not. But it it feels also like you're using this the dis, this dis, disruption technique of the alienation alienation effect with regards to American notions of race. Absolutely. Um, the performance of race or the expectations of how a black poet or any black artist is expected to perform mm -hmm. their art. Um, and I had two recent guests in the last six months on Between the Covers, Morgan Parker and Diane Bajess, oh, yeah. who um, are also gra grappling with black performance overtly in their mm -hmm. work and authenticity, asking similar questions, but I think in a really different way. Mm -hmm. um, for one, they're both centering black performers. In Morgan Parker's case, it's Beyonce. Beyonce. And with Tyan Bajess, the minstrel era them, yeah. um, mm -hmm. musicians. Um, 
and they're deconstructing the received canon and, and reconstructing a canon that references black references. Mm -hmm. um, but in your case, it feels like you're also troubling this question of performance and per performativity for black artists, but in a really different way. Um, we see references in Digest, say Jewish references to mm -hmm. Tzitzi, to Hillel, to mm -hmm. Spinoza, to Emma Lazarus. We mm -hmm. see Kierkegaard and Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. um, we see maybe in, we see your your pursuit of Danish translation, um, perhaps an insistence um, in a very different way than Jess and Parker um, of black identity being anything essentially in a way. So I would love to hear if I, if you feel like I'm off track, No, but yes, also absolutely. wanted to hear your response in, in relationship to that, you know, you're all, um, poets asking these, raising these questions at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, part of what's at stake for me is not just, um, the performance of the performance of a black poet or the performance of a black artist. It's also just the performance of blackness, period, in society. So I had always resented, as I, I, I know a lot of people resented, the idea that um, black culture and white culture, quote unquote, were separate entities. And, you know, he was writing later than, than I wrote Digest, but Ta-Nehisi Coates, in, in his book Between the World and Me, uh, captures this idea really well. And, and in the, there's a, the question is, uh, he quotes Saul Bellow as asking, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus? And Coates teases this out for a few pages uh, to bring us around to the very obvious conclusion that Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus. And it, it was such a, a kind of um, epiphany for me, as epiphanies are, you know, the, the revelation of really obvious things, that I had fallen for the idea, you know, when you ask the question, who's the Tolstoy of the Zulus, I started I start thinking, oh, geez, well, who, yeah, that's true. Where, who is, who would be? And why, you know, there's absolutely no basis for that kind of division. And I remember asking my students while I was teaching at uh, a class at Columbia, I said, who is the, because uh, we were also trying to, to grapple with this deeply ingrained logic, social logic, that, that culture is, you know, can be distinguished in this way. And I said, well, let's try another example. Who is the Beyonce of white people? <laughs> and everyone in the room was like, what? It's Beyonce. What, what a ridiculous right. thing just to ask. <laughs> I said, exactly. Why yeah. would we presume, and I'm speaking to myself, yeah. you know, as much as anything else, anyone else, why would we presume that there had to be a, a, separate, per, a separate writer to represent the, the Zulus in this case? Well, I had always, just to put one more spin on this, uh, it, it also frustrated me that uh, in reading, the studying the Harlem Renaissance, and studying the modernist poets, Eliot, Pound, Williams, Stein, we in, in school as an undergraduate, I was taught these these schools, these these groups of poets, uh, as if they had never heard of one another, as if they existed on entirely different planets. And you know, just sort of getting older and, and doing my own 
research and allowing myself to think more freely about things, discovering that they, of course, they're all reading the same work and they're all in conversation. They all know one another, you know, and and so I was very just increasingly frustrated with this, the siloization, which is the academic term, this kind of segregation of cultural icons and, and, and influences. This has everything to do with the, the conversation around authenticity and appropriation. And my bottom line is, as an artist, it's all available to me. I don't, I, I, I draw influence, I draw my influences, I draw my inspirations from the work that I admire. And that is not, and I refuse to precondition those influences. I, I refuse to sort those influences uh, before the fact according to s- these cockamamie ideas of, of, of race and identity. But in a way, it's it's interesting, like, say, we think of Tyamba Jess and Morgan Parker are aiming at the same goal as you, but with entirely different techniques in the sense of they're trying to construct sort of the black canon right. that has been erased or right. not provided. And right. here you're you're also aiming at the same end goal, it seems to me. Yeah. So I asked the question I, when I, I taught um, African-American poetry course recently, and in my syllabus, I, I state that the objective of this course is to make it, just to make this course obsolete. And I know that that pisses a lot of people off, that idea. Well, let me ask you yeah. a little bit about that, about the pissing off part. Because um, we're talking about expectations around uh, uh, how a writer who's a, or an artist who's a person of color or an African-American, um, what expectations people have about how that looks. But I'm imagining there's not just expectations within the white community. There's going to be expectations of how a black artist yes. should perform their art within the black community. Right. Um, and I'm curious how that has intersected with your, your yeah. career yeah. as a as a. So this writer. is this is part of what I'm also trying to trouble, and I think this may be. Um, well, I don't want to speak for for Parker or, or Jess. But I, I think this may be one of the things that that is unique. Um, that sounds very self-serving about my work. Uh, is that I am I include in the problem in, in the the those who hold the problematic ideas. I include the black community, and so we we have, uh, for example, the the rare book poem where. I'm describing um, parents who whose time has passed a little bit, and they, you know they were they were once upon a time sort of nationalistic, black nationalistic, and and very you know sort of pro-black, and and find themselves uh, very comfortably middle class, and those ideas are falling to the wayside. And I, my notion of progress is that. I think it's time now that we can start making fun of the foibles of the black community, right? And, the, and, the, and these, I think, for so long, uh, you know, the, there's been this this brittle kind of uh, fragile, rather. Uh, I read somewhere. I, forget, I wish I could uh, attribute the idea to the correct person, but the, this kind of under glass, this culture under glass uh, effect, and. 
I, as I said, I think now we've we've reached a point where uh, we can we can take the stuff out and and sort of handle it and uh, make light of it. Can we hear the Black Panthers poem? Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, um, any I, I've been playing a lot with forms in this book. Uh, just really interested in the the notion of re- received forms, and much like with Lewis out there, the notion of um, the idea that that so much of language is a is itself a received form. Um, and so, what is already communicated in the idea of a rare book description? And so, this is something that you know what the associations we have with the rare book is that it's it's out of date. It's it's no no longer of use there, but but it, there is a sentimental value that you want to hold on to, and so already in that frame, I'm I'm critiquing um, pretense or, or the um, yeah the, the the pretense toward black nationalism. Eight thirty seven, Wilson, Shirley Ann Mfumi, Black Pampers, raising consciousness in the post nationalist home. Black Talk Press, Lawnside, New Jersey, 1976, 442 pages, illustrator unknown, 10 and a half by 11 and 7 eighths inches. What tips for nursery decor? Masks and hieroglyphics. Aquaba dolls. Send Raggedy Ann to the trash heap. This tome is a how-to for upwardly mobile black parents beset with the guilt of assimilation. Revealed here are the safety pinnings of the nascent black middle class, their leafy split-level cribs and infants with Sherman Hemsley hairlines. Of interest are bedtime polemics on the racist derivations of the wheels on the bus. Chapter headings address important questions of the day. How and how soon should you intervene if you suspect your child lacks rhythm? At what age? should you begin initiating your little one to the historical memory of slavery? And how ethical is the two-cake solution? One party for classmates, and a second so you can invite the cousins. Indispensable to collectors for whom Aesop's African origin is no matter of debate will be the gloss and annotation, comprising the bulk of the text, of the lyrics to Stevie Wonder's Black Man. According to the jacket copy, One of the alternate titles considered was What to Expect When You're No Longer Expecting Revolution. Usual occasional scattered light foxing to interiors, contemporary tree calf exceptional, about fine condition, $75. You've been listening to Gregory Parlow read from his poetry collection, Digest. I was was hoping maybe we could touch briefly on your essay, uh, Revisiting the Racial Mountain. because it relates to this and to oh, the yeah. ways in which these questions have have been being raised for a long time, yeah. could you could you orient us to um, Langston Hughes's Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, and then your response to it? Yeah, so it's a it's a canonical essay. It's a very important essay in Langston Hughes. I uh, wrote I forget the year nineteen twenty six. I'm guessing somewhere around there, um, where he. It's a kind of manifesto where he asserts that for his generation, the, the, which is the younger generations of, of um, New York at, at the time, uh, were no longer going to be subject to or allow themselves to be subject to 
the kind of double consciousness that Du Bois talks about, and, and that is um, writing with um, a kind of uh, anticipation of white audiences or, or writing, writing, sorry, writing in, in fear of and writing for the approval of white readers and or the um, sort of middle class uh, bourgeois black readers of the, of the time. In the essay, Hughes has a line that says um, uh, the tom-tom the beats, that in basically the suggestion that the, in his blood, uh, Africa is in his blood, and, and he, he, the image that he uses is the tom-tom the is, is beating uh, within him. And the beef I have with Hughes is that is not Hughes specifically. I think he's writing for his time, and it's it's relevant to his historical moment. But we, so many uh, young writers today, continue to read that essay as uh, as relevant to our historical moment. And the, the the challenge that I wanted to put to the essay, and which is not to say to Hughes, was that race isn't that we don't see race as essential in the way, in that is, uh, as biological in the way that Hughes' metaphor suggests in the 1920s. And so I wanted to, oh, and there's another, uh, Hughes also says um, that there, he's in a conversation with a young black poet who says, I don't want it, and this is the, the cliche, and we've been you know, having this conversation for, for generations, uh, the poet says, I don't want to be a black poet. I just want to be a poet. I don't want to be a black poet. And Hughes uh, deduces from that that the poet wants to be white. And that, to me, seems a, a leap, a, a substantial leap to say that because this poet doesn't want to write under, um, under the... Uh, sort of constructions of race under the definitions of race that therefore that means he wants to be a different race right and so I wanted to challenge the the logic of that and of course I'm thinking about my you know the opportunities for for my own imagination you know what's available to me as a as a writer today in the 21st century but it was interesting that the some of the responses that I got were were Vehement, were just absolutely, you know, bitter and, and resentful. Um, and again, it's this this under glass effect, this this sense that our our literary heritage, a, is exclusively black, and that b, it has to be protected and, and defended at at all costs as mm -hmm. as infallible and, and beyond beyond questioning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your dissertation in relationship to this book, since you are were a student while writing Digest. Mm -hmm. um, and I read, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that your dissertation was dealing with or is dealing with the historical effects of slavery era, slavery era practices such as uh, the prohibition for black people to make eye contact right. with white people. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that scholarly research is finding its way into the poetry? Well, this is the question that, I'm, that I am asking. And I think the, 
the move that I'm trying, the theoretical move that I'm trying to make in a dissertation is to connect the theoretical to the creative practice. Um, well, sorry, the, the, I'm trying to connect the political to the creative. I want to find the, the connection between our, you know, sort of social practices and, and literary practices. And so I'm thinking about um, this idea of uh, reckless eyeballing. And, you know, as late as uh, Emmett Till certainly is the, probably the, the most iconic um, uh, representative of this, Emmett Till gets murdered because of the way he looks at, ultimately whistles at, but the way that he looks at, I, in, in my construction, a white woman. Um, historically, in the 19th, throughout the 19th, well, throughout slavery in general, there was a social prohibition, if not an explicit prohibition, against blacks looking whites in the in the eye. And so, when there is this uh, prohibition against making eye contact, uh, I was thinking about what are all the other prohibitions um, that limit the forms of witness that uh, an African American, per, a black person, um, is capable of. And then, how do those limitations? get interiorized, get um, sort of bought into? And then what is the effect of that on the imagination? So if I can't imagine, imagining myself as a 19th century uh, black person, if I can't imagine a white person's face on the page, if I can do it in my head, if I can't represent it on the page, what other limitations um, does that suggest for for the imagination? So that's kind of the larger question that I'm that I'm after, um, and I connected to. Well, I don't know how <laughs> how kind of um, PhD ish we want to get with it, but that's the well. That's the, maybe yeah? let's finish that. Sentence. Okay, so I mean, so I connected to the the curse of Ham. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, Ham is. One of, of Noah's sons. Noah's sons, yes. And Ham sees Noah drunk and naked, passed out in the in the in the tent. And uh, so he backs out of the of the tent and says, Oh uh, he tells his brothers, uh, you know, dad's in there drunk and naked and we should we should do something. And and so they tell the brothers tell Noah that Ham saw you in a shameful state. And so Noah curses him and his descendants. This becomes the, the biblical justification for slavery. And so for decades, if not centuries, the, the, the term, it was, the, the suggestion was that blacks were the descendants of Ham and suffered, therefore, the curse of Ham. And so slavery was... God's will, essentially. And so it was also the, this metaphor of, the, uh, of being cursed for what he sees seemed really hmm. uh, sort of salient to me. And there's one other twist on, the, on my interest here, and that is I'm, I'm thinking about Emerson, and Emerson's idea of the imagination, the transcendental you know, American transcendental philosophy. Emerson's idea of the imagination is the, or this m metaphor for the imagination is the transparent eyeball. 
You know, I see all. I'm a transparent eyeball. And that kind of um, that kind of freedom, that 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 full witness, was uh, fascinating to me when set beside W. E. B. Du Bois's notion image of the imagination, the black imagination, which is the veil. And so you have, you know, what is it? What does it mean for an artist when, you know, when you can conceive of your the potential for your imagination being sort of limitless witness, three three hundred sixty degrees, versus something that is occluded, something that is subdued, yeah. something that is in, inhibited, you know, before you sit down to to write or or create at all, and so. A, there's a there's a kind of trauma that's already sort of built in, and I'm I wanted to look at. Hopefully, one day I'll get to finish my dissertation. <laughs> look at the ways that trauma is actually encoded, and and um, and and might be legible in the the literature, if not the poetry in particular. That's really fascinating, mm. and I imagine winning the Pulitzer Prize is a good excuse for your teachers to uh, not having finished your dis- dissertation. It does, yes, it does. It's better than <laughs> dog eating my homework. Right? Uh, <laughs> could, could we hear? And can you introduce? And can we hear written by himself? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, written by himself is um, a kind of collage poem, and I was reading a lot of uh, slave narratives. Um, and I was thinking about how much of my sense of myself as an African American was const- is constructed is based on not just the sort of pop cultural context, but is rooted in what we consider the the black canon, you know, so literature of of African American identity. And so going through these slave narratives and, and I, I wanted I was interested in the tension but that I feel at any rate between my own experience as someone who grew up in the suburbs of, of South Jersey and this notion of authentic black experience, the authentic uh, sort of yeah uh, black experience being rooted in the American South and, and being sort of contextualized by um, antebellum references, none of which were a part of my daily experience, but nonetheless had everything to do with um, my sense of myself as, a, as an African-American person. Written by himself. I was born in minutes in a roadside kitchen a skillet whispering my name. I was born to rainwater and lie. I was born across the river where I was borrowed with clothespins, a harrow tooth, broadsides sewn in my shoes. I returned, though it please you, through no fault of my own, pockets filled with coffee grounds and eggshells. I was born still and superstitious. I bore an unexpected burden. I gave birth I gave blessing. I gave rise to suspicion. I was born abandoned outdoors in the heat-shaped air, air drifting like spirits in old windows. I was born a fraction and a cipher and a ledger entry. I was an index of first lines when I was born. 
I was born waist-deep, stubborn in the water, crying, ain't I a woman and a brother? I was born to this hall of mirrors, this horror story. I was born with a prologue of references pursued by mosquitoes and thieves. I was born passing off the problem of the 20th century. I was born. I read minds before I could read fishes and loaves. I walked a piece of the way alone before I was born been listening to Gregory Pardlow read from his poetry collection Digest. And it's true that uh, I think I read that all slave narratives begin with I was born. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've said you've wanted, you've, you've said in this conversation, but elsewhere also that you've wanted to work against the idea of there being something essential about race and mm-hmm. then, and then by extension aesthetics. And that, that is specific to this poem that because you had no firsthand access to any of the images in the poem that you use, that you had to gather them from reading and research, that you argue that anyone could have written this slave narrative-influenced poem, whether that poet was black or white mm-hmm. or Asian mm-hmm. or Christian or Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, can you unpack that a little mm-hmm. bit for us? So again, there's this, this, this conversation about authenticity. Authenticity became more, or the, the conversation became more and more absurd to me as I thought about how much of my... Um, my sense of myself as a writer is derived from all my literary heroes. And so, you know, who, who are you, who are your influences is a question every writer gets. But, you know, so I, whenever I, I get the question, there's, I, I get the sense that there's an expectation and I'm going to say Langston Hughes, Gwendolyn Brooks, et cetera. And yes, absolutely. Those people are very important. But my primary influences are Walt Whitman and Gerard Manley Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there's, there's no reason for that not to be the case. There's no reason for that to, to you know, it be an issue at all. Another question I often get or another uh, comment that I often get is um, people will say, oh, your, your work is so, so rhythmic and, and you know, so sort of soulful and and great, that's I'm I love it, but I begin to suspect hearing it over and over again. I begin to suspect that there's something you know kind of predetermined in that that there's a the presumption that you know that that is that as a black poet my work is going to be rhythmic, and so I wanted to play with the idea or or, or highlight rather the the idea that we. The poetry is a craft, and that we're we're drawing on previous literature. We're choosing our influences, and uh, and my adoption of African American culture, literary culture, is no different from my adoption of Walt Whitman. No different from my adoption of Gerard Manley Hopkins, and I wanted to create that uh, that space. Uh, I guess the the. Re- the reader has to know that I grew up in the suburbs, I think, in order for that to that tension to really be present. And the, the reason I say that is because uh, in reading that, this poem, I have also gotten uh, the response that, uh, oh, this is uh, your, your, your sense of your, yourself as a, as, a, as a black man, as a descendant of slaves, is just so, so powerful and so present here. And Again, great. <laughs> Thank you. That's wonderful. But I, 
but that is a that is a that is a choice. That's a, a that's a chosen connection. That isn't a, a connection that kind of bubbles out of my, you know, out of uh, I forget the word I'm looking for. That's all right. I want to I want to like take this briefly, just touch on this theme, but in relationship to this this uh, conversation that's happening at large about appropriation in mm-hmm, art. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to quote something you said back, and then I would love to just unpack. Okay. That also, if you don't mm-hmm. mind. Our burgeoning individualism ups the ante on poets to identify the bonds that unite us beyond socially and historically constructed categories. When any poet produces a world on the page in which diversity is inconceivable, I wonder if the poet is being willfully regressive. To be fair, I think fears of appropriation often have the effect of further alienating, alienating us and reinforcing our assumptions about cultural differences. Mm-hmm. What so where where does this when we look at say written by himself and you, and part of what you're saying is, regardless of your background, you could have done the research and and this was this. a literary poem, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that fit in for you around these questions about people writing um, across difference or and inhabiting? the voices of people who may not have access to be able mm-hmm. to write mm-hmm. their own stories or, mm-hmm. or, you know, how, how does that all yeah, fit so, in for you? So I, I start the book with that poem with written by himself because of the, that question that it raises. And as you, you said earlier, I, as we move through the book, I'm, I'm drawing on what I know about all types of American culture. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, this is the, the justification for it. I'm not, uh, I'm not appropriating Jewish culture when I make a reference to Hillel. H- Hillel is a <laughs> is an international figure, right? I mean, he's, right. he's ac- accessible to to everyone. Um, Emma Lazarus is by no means, you know, a specific uh, a cultural reference uh, or a culturally specific reference. And so, what I'm trying to do is is to make make space for myself to. To access all of these references without um, a kind of self-consciousness about a, a appropriation, by extension, what I want to do is demonstrate for the reader, or, or provide an example for the reader, who in many cases is going to be another poet, probably, or someone who is very, you know, invested in in the craft of poetry, um, if not these these questions, is to demonstrate a way that. Uh, that this kind of inter, you know, inter, I'm already falling into the that you know the problem again, but the, the ways this kinds of um, uh, open border influence is possible. So we had not too long ago the the uh, best American poetry uh, kind of problem where the the guy writes in the, under the the pen name of. Um, of a Chinese American woman, or we don't know if she's even even American. It's a it's a white guy writing under a Chinese under the name of a Chinese woman, and this creates a, a big furor. And he makes the argument that he's only getting published because he's not using his own name. Right. That right. there's actually it's easier for a non-white person to get published. I think it was his argument. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's all there's all kinds of messy despicable and and uh horrific things bound up in that but i'd like to think of a way that he can do that 
and have it be okay. You know, so the problem isn't that that he writes the poem, you know, sort of borrowing on uh, traditions of Chinese poetry, you know, imagery and, and uh, syllabics, or you know, or, or these kinds of questions. The problem is a is is something outside of the craft of poetry, and that is the the, the claiming of this name. Take the name off of it, and I think it's <laughs> making myself vulnerable to to attack yeah. here. I know, but I think it's an absolutely valid poem, right? If we if we didn't have if he if he left his own name on it, then that's that's what we do as poets, and that is explore, you know, and and um, and absorb all of the the cultural influences that we find valuable. Yeah. Well, I don't want to spend the whole interview on this topic, but I do it's want to ask one more question yeah. about it. Mm. So like when, when Claudia Rankin was on, she talked about how it's very rare for white people when they're writing about race. Well, oh, first of all, she right. says white people rarely write about race, but when they do write about race, they don't stay in their own white bodies often. So right. most of the time they imagine That's themselves great. as an African That's or great. as a slave. Right. Um, and she's encouraging right. white artists mm -hmm. instead of writing across difference and well, and risking appropriation, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, to think about how can you write about race but actually stay at home in your body mm -hmm. as a as a white person engaging yeah. with race. And I was curious about how that yeah how that um, well because with the the presumption is that the white body is not racially marked, right? And I mean, right. so we are all writing about race all the time. And within the the problem, I think that that um, in the in the instances where the the and I'm using uh, air quotes scare quotes here, where the white poet is not writing about race is that the white poet is not aware that she is writing about race, mm. right? And uh, and so I had a student, and I've told this story before. I had a student once uh, we were reading, I don't know, we I think we were we were reading a, a black queer poet. Um, and this young woman says, out of frustration, you know, I, I, I'll never be able to, to write anything like this. I'll never be, a, the, the suggestion being I'll never be a great poet because I'm just uh, a, a white girl from the, from the Midwest, a middle class white girl from the Midwest. I can't write about race or, or anything like this. First of all, you can't make that statement outside the context of race. Right, and, and this is, this is part of the problem is that we're we're not aware of how whiteness participates in, in the in the in the whole context. But second of all, she's reducing herself to this these few sets of markers, right? And if I see myself as in the totality of myself as a, a working class African American male. Well then, yeah, I'm going to have a hard time writing anything of any, any real value. But if we think of ourselves as individuals outside of these contexts, and that these contexts, these these sort of markers and labels, are stuff things that exist out in the world, well, then we have an opportunity to to be in conversation with them. And I, and I think the, the the problem with, and this is not nothing exclusive to white writers, this is all writers, is that we have so deeply internalized the logic of race that we are writing, that we're already in that category when we begin writing, yeah. right? And it doesn't allow for um, 
the the kind of circumspect the the kind of um, rather I think the word is purview I'm looking for that uh, is affordable outside of you know when one has some objectivity on on these ideas on these these contexts yeah yeah well to pivot from here mm. you you make this really interesting connection between your interests in interrogating uh, race and your interest in the environment in your conversation with Tracy K Smith you say I don't mean to say that I believe in race or racial thinking but that the problem of the 21st century will be figuring out how to dismantle the mythology of race while honoring the real relationships and histories that we constructed while under the spell of that mythology. And there's something about the ways our attitudes toward nature are bound up in the impulse to dehumanize others through, for example, the mythology of race, in the impulse even to place nature in the service of humanity. So, and then you say, my mandate as a parent and poet, as I see it, is to write poems that chip away at that arrogance, however subtly. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which race and the environment intersect and digest? That's more, that's more intuitive connection, um, which is to say I, I, I haven't articulated, I haven't um, thought through uh, a way of articulating that other than um, other than the idea that much as we were talking earlier about patriarchy you know and so that the the how the father figure that owns all of the bodies in the house and owns the what those bodies produce plays out in you know in the context of race and gender sexuality class I think the the logic of race is very similar to the logic of that the logic that alienates nature and suggests that nature is 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 the other is the ultimate other. And so, you know, when we and that logic applies to class too. So the, you know, the the person on the street is is out there is not a is not has is not connected to me either in my economic life or in my social life the racial other is not connected the you know the other person contends with race i am not marked by race so the human uh in relation to nature i think we have a, we have a similar tendency to not view ourselves as part of nature as intrinsic to the, the environment the place where i maybe i read into it but the place where i saw one of several examples of this in digest was around the parrots yes the poem yeah. where yeah. where we're um looking both at perhaps um, endangered species but also borders and crossing of borders right. um, the parrots become a metaphor for refugees well, i mean they're they're human i mean it's it's yeah. a human history and and there is i am also kind of Playing with the the uh, anthropomorphic, the, our tendency to anthropomorphize the the natural world. Um, could could you read mm -hmm. that poem? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Deleuze and Guattari. Making love is not just becoming as one or even two, but becoming as a hundred thousand. Raise your eyes along the spires of Greenwood Cemetery, or stand on the ball fields of Brooklyn College in Hopperesque light. Quaker parrots will appear to you like the visions of St. Francis, 
lift the snatches of sound woven to make their voices and call to you from their nests, a nation of cheer trumpets and conch shells, a frenzied population of twitching toes. They seduce us not simply with their tropical verve. Listen into the feathered shrubbery of their heat, their chattering lines from Emma Lazarus, their trading fours on salt peanuts, their mourning their cousin, the Carolina parrot, reduced to a flourish on ladies' headgear. Who flushed them from their ancestral skies of Argentina? What love sustained the awareness of their bodies, whether as chattel or deportees, such distance? And who speaks for this diaspora, heedless of empire's mundane cartography? If we ask why Brooklyn, we hear only our own reply. If not here, where? Then tease the final query from our minds, like thread from a lawn chair, parroting Hillel. And if not now, when? I've been listening to Gregory Pardlow read from Digest. This is a good example also of sort of the playfulness you do around form, because you include these epigrams at the beginning yeah. of the of the poems. But all throughout, we have the fake sociological essays, the reviews of imaginary books. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about your relationship to form and constraint. Um, when I first saw the word Klinemann in the book, for mm. Klinemann improvisations, I, I only knew that word in one context, which I don't think is the context you were using it. But I knew it from the Lipo movement, the constraint-based writers in France, mm. who, when they would come up with a form, say, I'm going to write a novel without the letter E, the Klinemann was the, the allowance to violate the form in order to come to some sort of aesthetic uh, cohesion. But, they, mm -hmm. but the whole movement was obviously about um, the liberation of constraining yourself. So finding a form and then producing works that out of, out of these, um, these strange constraints. And mm -hmm. I, I was mm -hmm. hoping you would talk a little bit more about your relationship to form. I know also you spoke at Tin House about uh, ekphrastic poetry mm -hmm. and um, why uh, writing in relation to visual arts is another way that you find uh, productive. Can, can you talk a little bit more? Yeah. So the I'm coming to Klinemann through the well through a number of places, but Harold Bloom is probably the 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 front door into to that term. And I, I am interested in the in the way in the that paradox of um, of deviation. Uh, and the resistance to form being the productive, um, the productive energy. We're always working in form. I mean, you know, so even just in thinking right now, as I'm, I'm rooting through my mind for the right ideas, I'm looking for the box that will contain the thing that I want to, that I want to communicate. And you know, so I make the argument in, when I talk about ekphrastic poetry that, that every poem is, is ekphrastic, is, and, and that is there is... Again, this idea that is out there that we're in conversation with, and we're trying to um, we're trying to fill that form, or trying to mirror that form on the page. As I think about it now, there's something cynical about. Uh, I wonder if there's something cynical about the way I'm picturing and I'm conceiving of the imagination, because I'm um, resisting the idea that. Again, the 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 notion of the poet as as shaman as as mystic, that where everything in the universe is you know sort of flowing through me, 
Um, I do believe, I do agree with Althusser somewhat in that, that language is already, is already constructing our ideas before we come to them. Um, well, if it's constructing our ideas, it's like a, a, a form before the form in a way also. All there is is form is, is pretty much the, the argument that I'm, that I'm making. Yeah. So you, you have a constraint-based poem that you did after the publication of Digest, The Wedding, ah, yeah. the wedding Planners, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for the Gwendolyn Brooks tribute anthology, um, where every poet is using a technique called the golden shovel, in, um, I believe, uh, yeah. invented by Terence Hayes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what the golden shovel is, um, the process of putting this poem together, using it, and then, mm-hmm. and then read the poem for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you remind me, actually... Um, one of the things that I'm thinking about when I, in the, the epigram, epigraph po- poems is that I'm taking these quotes and I'm willfully misreading them. I'm trying to find the opportunities in misreading in order to, to produce the poem. And so there's a, there's a, there's a disconnect between the intended meaning, the, the, the authoritative meaning, and and the the kind of rebellious um, uh, resistance that that is fueling the the creative process for the for those poems, and so the I think that I'm doing something similarly with the or at least my approach to the golden shovel. So Terence Hayes invents this uh, form in which the he takes a line from a Gwendolyn Brooks poem, and each word from that line is placed at the end of its own line in a new poem. So in other words, it's a a kind of inverted acrostic poem where rather than each line beginning with, um, you know, a a certain word, you have to kind of back into each one of these, these lines. I mean, sorry, each one of these words. And I think the, or at least the approach that I, that I felt uh, was implied or, or the, the effect that I felt was implied was that I should write a poem that was somehow in conversation with the line and the poem that I took from Gwendolyn Brooks. And I wanted to go somewhere completely left with it. And that, that's kind of the, the spirit of um, you know, sort of pulling the, the rug out from under the, under the form in the sense of undermining the authority of the form that, I, that I'm interested in. So the line from the Brooks poem uh, is from one of my favorite Brooks poems, and that's The Lovers of the Poor. And it is, herein they kiss and coddle and assault. And so each one of my lines ends in one of those words. The poem's The Wedding Planners. We need a preacher who will say, up in here, instead of herein. Our vows should reference calla lilies and the snowy pistols they jab ardently at our faces. Let's place their linty, foul-mouthed kiss at the center of satin tablecloths, white as bee boxes, and us buzzing like the ick-thick insects we'll invent. Coddlefish, thinning the air, murmuring for words beyond civil and ceremony, beyond moderation, all our senses under assault. 
been listening to Gregory Pardlow read The Wedding Planners. I want to briefly touch on your use of academic language and then have mm. you also read uh, Corrective Lenses, if you would. Sure. Uh, our, my last guest on the show was Danny Shapiro, the memoirist, and she, she talked on the show about how when she's worried about writing about somebody, um, mm. say like her grandfather mm. or her mm. son, she'll often um, write about worrying about Right. Uh, about them. So worrying about writing about them. Mm-hmm. So it becomes metafictional and it allows right. her to do it. Yeah. But it, she also admits that at the same time, she's writing about them. Right. So she's right. violating something. And at the same time, she's um, creating a way to enter into it. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, because you have a very, you use a lot of academic language and you, you parody a lot of academic <laughs> language in the book. <laughs> But I also wondered, because it feels like there's a lot of delight in the use of it, if that's sort of an entryway for you to sort of allow yourself in poetry to really revel in yeah. academic language. Am yeah. I off base on no, that? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I've yeah. been called on that, too. And, and it's not something I'm, I'm hiding by any means. Um, but, yeah, we think we started off this conversation talking about the metaphysical poets and this kind of pejorative um, – labeling of academic poetry and you know i like some of these ideas i like some of the a lot of the theory and the 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 potential for uh social criticism that the that this language allows or affords us but i'm also sensitive to you know how obnoxious (laughs) and, and um and how alienating some of that language is at the same time so i want to you know, kind of thumb my nose at it, as as I say a little bit, uh, but I am also getting mile, mileage off of it at yeah. the same time. Corrective lenses. Corrective lenses, creative reading, and recontextualization. A text dropped in the brain's pale rattles the way astrophysicists say they can hear the birth of time tuning the salt rim of Saturn. For example, Finnegan's Wake. For example, horoscopes and little notes folded into cookies. The Society of Prophetic Archaeologists argues all arguments are subject to confirmation bias. In this course, we will venerate the subjective mind, or rather, examine how subject-object share the fuzzy circumference of a lone spotlight beneath the proscenium arch. There is no reliable narrator. For example, tea leaves or cloudbursts in the shape of ladybirds. We will interrogate the cagey and shifting sign in order to coerce all its false confessions. We will learn to project our backslashes to snatch a suffix like the fake mustache of an incognito, impose parentheses to ironize our dependence on convention. Because there are no valid means of assessment, students are encouraged to assign their own grade upon registration. Any book will do. Phone, face, match, bank. We will set course across wastelands of difficult punchlines under bad signs to flush the comic truth like, what, a flock of starlings, a dime bag, while we pretend a grasp of subtleties as they spiral spark showers like a Chinese New Year. Red gold, red gold, red gold. We've been listening to Gregory Pardlow read from his 
Poetry Collection Digest. So your next book due next year is a collection of essays, Mm -hmm. um, Air Traffic, your first Mm -hmm. book of prose, a collection about your dad, who was an air traffic controller, who was one of the strikers in 1981 when um, Reagan broke the strike. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience of writing essay versus Mm -hmm. poetry, but I also read that you write your poems first as prose. So I was mm-hmm. curious if that's true and then mm-hmm. if maybe you could talk about the prose writing that predates the poem and then mm-hmm. the way in which that might differ than the essay writing. Mm-hmm. You know, so thinking back even to my undergrad, my early undergrad before sort of flunking out and coming back, so early undergrad days of writing and, and uh, in my comp courses, I remember writing very lyrically and and being sort of chastised for uh, for extended metaphors and um, and sort of deviations from the the argument. And then when I got to writing the my longer poems, I was I wanted to think about ideas. I wanted to play with ideas, and I wanted to make, or at least I wanted to imply arguments. And but I also wanted to write poems. And so I allowed myself a little more freedom in when, when I was writing Totem to, to do that. And around that time, in the early 2000s, of course, um, Deborah Tall and John Degata were, were editing uh, a journal, and, I, and they were sort of specializing in the, the lyric essay, something they called the lyric essay. And I thought, well, finally, there's a name for what I, what I want to do. And so I sent some, some work there, and, um, and I felt very at home in that journal. I only published one poem with them, but, but uh, it, was, it was very exciting to me. And even after Totem, I wanted to study, um, I wanted to write essays, I wanted to write uh, nonfiction. I didn't know where, what to do with that, so I started exploring that impulse in my doctoral work. And so I, uh, most of it was academic work that had these kind of lyric flourishes. Um, and then it wasn't until uh, I finally allowed myself to, to pursue nonfiction in, um, that, you know, fully that I discovered that the essay was a, a kind of home for for what I really wanted to do, and, and that, that there was a history, there was a tradition for it already. I had wanted to write, been planning to write about the strike for a long time. Obviously, this was something that was very impactful to me. I was I was twelve at the time of the strike. Um, my family lost just about everything, as I say in in a, in a poem. We lost everything but the house, uh, and. I wanted to study both the the labor history that arrived to that brought us to that moment. I wanted to to think about the issues of class. I wanted to think about you know the sort of American dream, and I was really interested in in the way that crisis kind of fueled m- my investment in in the arts which is a kind of disinvestment in traditional means of employment or conventional means of employment. And the essay would allowed me to do all of these things. And, and, you know, of course, it wasn't the essay that allowed me to do it. It was just that I, I, I found something that I, I felt gave me permission, and that was the, the important thing. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's so. finish with one last poem if you're mm-hmm. if you're up for it. Mm-hmm. Um, how about wishing well as a as a absolutely sure as a final poem? Okay. Yeah. So this poem is also thinking about race in the similar ways that we've been talking about in that the you know the I think the presumption would be that you have these these two African American men and that they would have a, a kind of built in rapport. I think they do, but they arrive at it in a way that that um that I think challenges the conventional notions of the you know the two brothers on the street kind of construction. Uh, wishing well. And this is the Metropolitan Museum that it refers to. Outside the Met, a man walks up, sun tweaking the brim sticker on his baseball cap, and he says, pardon me, old school, he says. You know, is this a wishing well? Yeah, son, I say sideways over my shrug. Throw your bread on the water. I tighten my chest, wheezy as rockaway beach sand, with a pull of faux smoke from my e-cig to cozy the truculence I hotbox alone, and I am at the museum because it is not a bar. Because he appears not to have changed them in days, I eye the heel-chewed hems of his pants and think probably he will ask me for 50 cents any minute now, wait for it. A smoke or something. Central Park displays the frisking transparency of autumn. Tracing paper sky, leaves like eraser crumbs gum the pavement. As if deciphering celestial script, I squint and purse off toward the roof line of the museum aloof as he fists two pennies from his pockets, mumbling and then aloud, my man, he says, hey, my man, I'm going to make a wish for you too. I'm laughing now, so what, you want me to sign a waiver? He laughs along. Ain't say all that, he says, but you do have to hold my hand and close your eyes. I make a starless night of my face before he asks, are you ready? Yeah, dog, I'm ready. Sure? Sure, let's do this. His rough hand in mine inflates like a blood pressure cuff, and I squeeze back as if we are about to step together from the sill of all resentment and timeless toward the dream source of unneeding. The two of us hurdle, sharing the cosmic breast of plenitude, when I hear the coins blink against the surface, and I cough up daylight like I've just been dragged ashore. See now, you'll never walk alone, he jokes and is about to hand me back to the day he found me in like I was a rubber duck. And he says, you got to let go. But I feel bottomless, and I know he means well, though I don't believe, and I feel myself shaking my head no when he means let go his hand. It was great having you on Between the Covers today, Gregory. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. We're talking today to Gregory Pardlow, the author of Digest and of the upcoming essay collection Air Traffic been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers and also while you're there check out the growing archive of bonus material available 
Thanks for listening. <laughs>